Open our Bibles, please, to the seventh psalm, Psalm 7. Notice the uh, heading above the psalm. It's talking about David praying against the malice of his enemies. And by faith, he sees his defense. And there's one, uh, Cush the Benjamite, that uh, was uh, a slander. We might call this psalm a song of the slandered saint. And you know, today we call it a smear, to smear someone. We still have a lot of smear artists, don't we? And the smear artist here in David's case was uh, Cush the Benjamite. And this uh, name is evidently applied to Shimea, uh, who was a Benjamite. And you'll find how that he slandered David back in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 and 8. And I'll read verse 7 and 8. It says, And thus said Shimea when he cursed, Come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. He called David a man of Belial in the verse or two before he cursed David. And he cast stones at David and all of his servants in verse uh, 6. Verse 7, And thus Shimea when he cursed, come out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. And so he called David a man of Belial. And we find that David, in giving us this seventh psalm, is, it's in rather a reply to the slander that had been against him through Shimea. And that might be an introduction to the psalm itself. So let's begin with verse 1. It says, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God. He's saying, in thee. He was as much as saying, in thee only. Because if he trusted in God, he trusted only in God. By the way, when you put your trust in God, you trust only in God. You can't trust him in something else. And so, uh, and the Bible tells us to trust. It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, doesn't it? And lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So we need to learn to trust God completely and totally and ask for his guidance in all of our ways. He would claim the Lord as his God. He says, O oh Lord, my God. If you could contrast that with uh, Psalm 8, which I hope to get into tonight. There's only nine verses in the 8th Psalm, and I have prepared both of them. If we don't get that far, uh, we'll just not take it up. But in the first verse of Psalm 8, it says, O oh Lord, our God. In Psalm 7, it says, O Lord, my God. He's not only our God, but he's our God individually, isn't he? And so David claimed the Lord as his God, and he made a plea for deliverance. He says, O Lord, my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that, them that persecute me and deliver me. Save me in my sore distress. Save me and bring deliverance to me. David made a plea for deliverance. You and I need to realize that we sometimes need to plead, plead to God for deliverance. In Psalm 34, verse 19, the Bible says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. God is able to deliver us out of all of our afflictions. He said, He has delivered me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom. He's a God of deliverance and He delivers us. He has delivered us from so great a death, and he doth deliver, in whom we trust that he shall yet deliver us. That's 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 1 and verse 10. Uh, uh, deliverance of the past, present, and future. He hath delivered me from so great a death, and doth deliver present, in whom we trust he shall yet deliver us. And so you have God has delivered us, and he's doing it now, and he will in the future. Past, present, and future. David claimed then the Lord is God. He made a plea for deliverance. 
And David knew who his real enemy was. Look at verse 2. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. This is typical of Satan. In fact, the word lion, tear my soul like a lion. Remember, the devil is pictured to us by Peter. He says, be sober, be vigilant. For your, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And he is vicious, and we're helpless before him unless we have the Lord. That's why David was pleading to God. He wanted deliverance in all of his distresses. In verses 3 through 5, we find David's plea of innocence. Let's read all three verses, and then we'll come back and talk about it. David says, O Lord my God, notice he says the same thing again. O Lord my God, if I have done if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered uh, him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. What was David saying here? David was willing to pay the penalty. If he was guilty of something, he says, if I've done this, if I have done this or iniquity, if there be iniquity, if I have rewarded evil unto him that uh, was at peace with me. All these things. David was confessing that he was capable of sin. David was confessing that there's a possibility uh, that there was some iniquity in himself. You know, sometimes we ne it never dawns upon us that there could be something wrong with ourselves. We always figure out that, you know, it's, it's got to be the other guy, hasn't it? But David had an enemy here, and they were persecuting him, and they were slandering him, and they were causing him all kinds of trouble. And David began to examine himself, and he says, if I've done this, so he was honest and open before God. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? Is there any glory in that if you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? You have it coming, don't you? But he says, then if you're if you're persecuted otherwise, let me read that for you in First Peter, uh, chapter two, I believe it is. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty. It says this. First Peter chapter two and verse twenty. It says, for what glory is it if you if when you be buffeted for your faults you, you shall take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So if you're doing good and suffer for it. Well, then it's acceptable to God to suffer unjustly in that sense. But if you are being buffeted for your faults, what glory is that? It's just like when you have something coming. Well, there's no glory in that, is it? But if you don't have it coming in the way of judgment or punishment or chastening, well, then you see it in a different light. David had shown mercy to Saul on two different occasions. He couldn't find the iniquity in himself. Remember, at one time... When he cut off Saul's skirt and then he, the servants wanted him to kill Saul, he had the advantage of him. And David says he was kind of, he was really uh, sorry that he had done what he had done. And he says, no, I don't want to touch God's anointing. First Samuel 24 and then First Samuel 26, we find again uh, he was at Saul's head. Saul was asleep and the spear was stuck in the ground by Saul's head. And a cruise of, of water there. And uh, his servants warned him to go ahead. He says, the Lord's delivered uh, Saul into your hand. And David wouldn't take advantage of that. He just took the spear and the 
cruise of water, and he got way back over on the other side, and he called out, and they they waked up Saul, you know, and uh, and uh, conversation transpired, and David says, "Send one of your servants over here. You can see that I didn't take advantage of your." Uh, situation by you being asleep and I could have taken your life. He said, send one of your servants over here, you one of your men, and get your spear. Here's your spear. Well, Saul knew immediately that David could have done away with him and he tried to make peace with him in that account. So David made a plea of innocence, didn't he? Now look on down in verses, uh, uh, through verse uh, 5. Look at verse 6. He says, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the, to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Now, God is on the throne of judgment. The Bible says he's prepared his throne for judgment. And to David, the Lord seemed to be unconcerned about the triumph of the wicked and about all the problems that, that he was uh, suffering. And so David, in verse 6, says, Arise, O Lord. He says, Lord, get up. And he says, lift up thyself, get on your throne of judgment because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. Three words. Look, arise, lift up thyself, and awake. David said, Lord, get concerned about my situation. He wanted to call God's attention to what was going on. I wonder if David realized at that time that the Lord is slow to anger, slow to wrath. Look in Psalm 103. Let me give you a verse. Psalm 103 is what it says here. In the 103rd Psalm in verse uh, 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. Now look, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He's what? Slow to anger. David says, Lord, get up. And he says, bring judgment. He says, because of my enemies. But the psalmist said here that he's slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And you know the wicked can go on day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And someone says, well, if they were that mean, God would have brought judgment. He's in no hurry. You see, he's got all time. He had time from the beginning. He's got time eternity. And he's in no hurry. God can settle the question 10,000 years from now. He can settle it at the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. He doesn't have to do anything in this life. See, he's in no hurry. The sentence will come. It's sure to come, though. The Bible tells us judgment is sure. And uh, we want to read verse uh, 7. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. Our plea is for the sake of all of God's children, and that was David's plea. Others would benefit from God's righteous judgment. David knew that there would be a judgment that was coming, and he was willing to be judged right, and he wanted to... He really was anxious for this judgment to come instead of patient for it. He didn't claim to be sinless, not guilty of the charges that were laid against him. Remember, Peter says that judgment must begin first at what? The house of God. He says if judgment first began at us, where will the ungodly and sinners appear and those that know not the gospel and receive not the gospel? Where will they appear? If that judgment begins first at us. It's kind of like I always get, uh, I'm always thankful to be reminded of the book of Amos where I wrote my thesis on the book of Amos and uh, Amos denounces six wicked nations round about Judah and Israel and he says for three transgressions and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof of Moab and of Edom and various ones and he calls them by name 
that God would judge them. And then he says, you know, that's well and good. And I can just hear Israel and Judah saying, Amen to that. These wicked nations causing them problems. But then Amos turns around and he says, For three transgressions of Israel, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And then for three transgressions, or, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment of Judah. Israel and Judah. So he ends up pointing the finger at God's own people. It's kind of like when the preacher's preaching. If he's preaching against someone's sin over here that you're remotely removed from, well, that's no big deal. You can say, Amen, preacher. But when the preacher starts getting right close to home, it's a different story. David said in one place, Remove, now I want you to get this, Remove iniquity far from me. Now listen how he said it. He didn't say, Remove me far from iniquity. Just remove iniquity far from me. In other words, it's here, and I want you to get it away from me. Sometimes we think it's all out there. Remove, remove me far from iniquity. No, that's not what he said. He says, remove iniquity far from me. So we've got to realize that our own uh, possibilities, that we need the message to be given to us. To A lot of folks say, you know, they hear it, and they say, that must be for someone behind me or over there. It's for all of us. And when the preacher's pointing out there, he's pointing back here. You ever see old Dr. Stanley preach? And he's got those big old long fingers. And he just points here and there. I wonder if he ever points back. I'm sure he does. But anyway, you see that big old long finger? Some of you have seen him on television. Good message. I wish you'd use the King James Bible, though. Anyway, he is a good preacher. And he used to use it. I don't know what got into him. But uh, we're going with this. Let's look down at verse... Uh, Eight, it says, uh, The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity uh, that is in me. David could put his hand on his heart and his cry to a righteous judge. And he'd say, God, I want you to search me throughout and judge me according to my righteousness. You know how what, what is lacking in me. You know if there's anything that needs to be brought out. And he says, And according to mine integrity that is in me. You know, we can't stand before God and say we are good and holy and pure and without fault or uh, without sins and shortcomings. And I believe David was taking that into consideration when he said back in verse uh, 3, if there be iniquity in my hands. Now, look, pick up with verse 9. Verse 9. He says, "Oh, oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just for God, uh, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. The hearts and reins is the inward parts, or the inmost part of our being, hearts and reins. God trieth the hearts and reins. The Bible says that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4, verse 13. See, God knows what's in our hearts. He knows everything about the inside of us. And we don't hide anything from the Lord. He trieth the hearts and reins. Don't let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. Look at verse 10. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. The wonderful thing to be, say, to be able to say, my defense is of God. His defense was of God. Your defense and mine, if we're servants of God, is of God. Isaiah said, no weapon, listen carefully. Isaiah said, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. And it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness 
is of me, saith the Lord. Now the Bible says, if God be what? For us, who can be against us? So, where is our defense? It's in God, isn't it? David knew where his defense was. Your defense and my defense is in God. <clears throat> Look at verse 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. God's attitude toward the wicked. What is God's attitude toward the wicked? He's angry with the wicked every day. That being a Christian is not a great advantage. Think of what it is to be a, a wicked person and unsaved and ungodly. The Bible says, He that believeth not is condemned already, right? Because he hath not believed under the, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Bible says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Now listen. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Wouldn't you hate to go through all your life with the wrath of God abiding on you? And it says the one that has not Christ, the wrath of God abideth on him because of sin. That's John 3.36. You read it for yourself. God is angry with the wicked every day. Some people don't want to know what all the Bible says. They think that, you know... God is good to all mankind. God is good to all mankind. And He's merciful and He's gracious. And He sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. And He's uh, long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. But God uh, is angry with sin. And when sin is there, it will be judged. And whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And if he doesn't reap it now, he's eventually going to reap it. The Bible says, He that often reproved and hardened the neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. It's a dangerous thing to live away from God or out from under God's protection. I'm glad I'm a Christian, aren't you? Aren't you glad that God has His defense for you and, and He looks over you and watches over you and that no weapon that's formed against you will prosper? And that if He's for us, who can be against us? Even the devil himself. doesn't make any difference. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Well, God is a man of war and an expert marksman. If you look back in verse, uh, let's read the next verse, and then look back in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, If he turn not, he will whet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. So God's sword is continually being sharpened upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness. Judgment may tarry, but it will be sure... It's sure to come. It says he's bent his bow and made it ready. <laughs> Aim has already been taken. He's bent his bow. You see a guy take a bow and arrow, you know, and you bend the bow, you're ready to shoot, aren't you? God has already taken aim at wickedness. And, just, and he's already re ready to let loose the bow. And the arrow will fly. In the book of Deuteronomy 32, if you care to. Verse 41, if you don't just listen to it. If I whet my glittering sword. God says, if I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take, take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. You see, we see one side of God. You know, people... Uh, just preach a lopsided God. They preach God is a God of love. God is a God of love. God is love, period. Love is of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God. John chapter 4 tells us all about God's love. 
But God is a God of judgment, too. And God is, is a God of vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is what? Mine, saith the Lord. It's His. I will repay. He says, if I whet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, if God turns His judgment loose, we'd better be careful because judgment is going to come. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 He's going to get rid of that accuser of the brethren. He's going to be cast out. And he'll bother us no more then. You could go on and find out how that he's an expert marksman. And he does not shoot his arrows at random. He knows it hits the mark. Sure, the Bible says your sin will find you out. By the way, that includes the sin of doing nothing as well. The sin of omission as well as commission. Be sure your sin will find you out. We have a responsibility as Christians to be faithful to God. And then the wicked are described in verse 10, 11, 12, and 13. Look, we read verse 10, 11, 12. It says, now look at verse 13. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordained his arrows against the persecutors. That's God's judgment upon the wicked. Now, in verse 14 and 15 and 16, we find the wicked are described. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. Look, three things, iniquity, mischief, and falsehood. He travaileth with iniquity. He is full of iniquity. He is pained to carry it out as a woman bringing forth. Hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. It's compared to... A woman bearing a child, only the wicked travail in iniquity, and they conceive, have conceived mischief, and they brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it, and is fallen into the ditch which he made. Look at that. He made a pit for someone else, and he digged it, and he's fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. He's hurled a stone at another and came down on his own head. Reminds you of old Haman, doesn't it? Remember old wicked Haman? He built a gallows to hang Mordecai on. Let me read it for you. In the book of uh, Esther, chapter 7, and verse uh, 9 and 10, it says, And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high. He made it great and high where everyone could see it. Fifty cubits? That's what? Seventy-five feet high? made a gallows 75 feet high, which Haman had made for Mordecai. Now look. Who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. Hang this fellow that built the gallows. It says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai, the Jew. Sometimes wickedness returns, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you prepare something for someone else, you may step in your own trap if you're not careful. That's what a lot of people have done. They said, boy, I've got him fixed now. I've really got him cornered. He can't help but step in that trap. First thing you know, you may stumble and fall in it yourself. Then who's going to be hurt by it? So you better be careful. Like one who plans mischief for others, he only harms himself, doesn't he? Remember what happened to Shimea. Remember that one that we spoke of that cursed? In fact, it's in keeping with this psalm because the one that cursed David, Solomon executed judgment upon him. In, in, second, in 1 Kings chapter 2, 
When Solomon, the son, got on the throne, let me read it for you. In 1 Kings chapter 2, it says in verse 44, The king said moreover to Shimeon, Thou knowest all the wickedness which thine heart is privy to, that thou didst to David my father. He said, Now look, you brought this on David my father. Therefore the Lord shall return thy wickedness upon thine own head. And he says, And the king Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him that he died, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. In Solomon's day, long after David was gone, long after Shimeon had uh, cursed David and thrown rocks at him and thrown rocks at his servants and had no respect for the king and said he's a, a son of Belial, right? We just read it earlier. Long years after, and David was off the scene, Solomon's on the throne, and what happened? Judgment is executed upon that fellow that had done David so much harm. Never get away with it. It's been from one generation to another. The last part of this psalm, we see David's praise. Quickly get into this. It says in verse uh, uh, 17, notice, it says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. He didn't say this time, my righteousness, did he? Remember before he says, God, I want you to look upon me according to my righteousness. Now he says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David knew that the Lord was righteous and that he was the Most High. And we need to, uh, in our minds and thoughts, join David in the thoughts of praise for God who is righteous and who is mighty in power. Well, that takes care of the seventh psalm. Let's look at the eighth quickly. It's, it's very brief. It's nine, nine verses, and we have plenty of time to cover it. And this is a psalm of praise, whereas that one was a psalm of the slandered saint. Notice what David says in Psalm 8. He says, O Lord, our God. You know, when we praise God, He may be yours personally and individually, and you have a personal relationship, but when we praise, we need to do it together, don't we? He says, O Lord, our God, how excellent is thy name. All the congregation of the Lord is to enter into praise together. You know, it disappoints me when people that need the things that we're teaching tonight and every service will not attend the house of God. Because the very people that need these things and need them most, I know all of us need them, but you're here and you get them constantly. And that's good. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And I hope you wouldn't have it any other way. But there's so many people that do need this that just skip and miss, you know, hit and miss deal. And, and others, you know, there's problems, trials, and various circumstances. Like Linda tonight had to work over at the hospital. We understand when people can't be here. That's a different story. But there's, and others are in, uh, maybe ill or some, or out of town or something. But when people have this available for them and they neglect it, then they're robbing themselves of a blessing. It's just re remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection and says, and Thomas was not with them. And later on he was with them and he was the doubting Thomas, wasn't he? And later on he came along and he says, well, he said, unless I see the prince in his hand, put my finger in the prince in his hand, place my uh, hand in his side where it was pierced, I will not believe. Thomas was there. He says, behold, he says, reach hither thy finger. And then thrust thy hand into my side. The preacher say one time that Thomas had to do that. No, he didn't do that. He looked at it and he says, Oh Lord, my Lord, my God. He believed. And Jesus said, Seeing, not feeling, but seeing thy eyes believe. He said, Blessed are those 
that have not seen and yet have believed. All right, let's go on with this. Psalm 8. O Lord, I, o Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Praise is offered to God. So the Lord is my shepherd, but he's our shepherd as well. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Psalm 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If this nation would get back to God. And by the way, I think that some people are waking up a bit and deciding that that may be the direction that we need to go now. We've gone every other direction, haven't we? We've gone away from God as far as we can go. So, or I don't say as far as we can go, but far enough, plenty. And so now it may be time to return. We can also claim Him as ours, can't we? And then the excellence of His name. Look at this. How excellent is Thy name in all the earth. Remember when Isaiah prophesied of Jesus? The prophecy, he says, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 9 and 10, that he's exalted Christ and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Christ has a name exalted. And notice, it says, Thou hast set thy glory above the heavens, more glorious than the heavens. He's glorious in holiness. The results of not giving God the glory are those that, remember, they glorified not God in Romans chapter 1, the wicked. They glorified Him not as God. And it's describing the wicked. Who does not glorify God? Wicked. It's, it's wicked and sinful to not glorify God. And you read in Romans chapter 1 when it's talking about the terrible sins and fall of, of those that turned against God. And God turned them over to a reprobate mind and let them believe a lie. And they, and to, uh, they would not have God. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So we find that uh, it's a very sad thing to not glorify God. Then we find in verse 2, notice what it says. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. Jesus refers this to this in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember the children come crying in the temple and fail to see God's glory? Then children may do so. Sometimes a little child can see it where grown-ups can't see it. You know, we get so concerned about children and young people coming to church and say, oh, we got to do this and that for them because they won't come otherwise. Listen, if you ask, if I had time, I'd just stop and ask. There's not very many here, but I'd ask. Well, I'll ask Wendy. Wendy, why do you like to come to church? What's the, do you feel like telling us? Why do you want to come to church? Do you want to come for a party? Do you want to come to be entertained? Or do you want to come to sing and to, to pray and to worship God and to fellowship with God's people? You know, if you'd ask these young people, sometimes we got the idea that they don't want to come unless they, we give them something. They want to come for other reasons. We could ask all, if you'd have all the children line up here, I, I guarantee you that most of them want to come because it's different than what they find in the world. They want to, don't want to come because it's the world. If they wanted the world, they'd stay there. They, they find something different. There's a different atmosphere, different feelings. There's something about love, the love of God and the Scriptures, and something about the, the Holy Spirit teaching them through the Word of God and making it a blessing to them. And uh, sometimes we misread what uh, young people want. We think they want everything uh, that's worldly, and sometimes they want the same thing we want as, 
as grown-ups, they want some spiritual growth and spiritual enlightenment and spiritual uh, help and instructions. And if not, let's encourage them to desire the right thing. Maybe a few come for other reasons. We're not saying all of the same. But I know children like Randy, I mean, uh, like uh, Wendy and, and Casey and, uh, uh, and of families like Randy and Vicki, that their children want to come for the right reasons. And mine wanted to come for the right reasons. And I believe that yours will want to come for the right reasons when they were brought to the house of God. So let's go on with this psalm. It says, um, out of the mouth of babes, look at that. Thou hast uh, ordained, and sufferings, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. Look at verse 3. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? When we consider the solar system, how it reveals the glory of God, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his, showeth his handiwork. We look out in the stars and the moon and the sun as it shines and all the other planets that we can see uh, with the telescopes and various things. And they only see just a very short distance into the, the space that's out there. So let me show you. We know how insignificant man is. What is man that thou art mindful of him? But let's consider in, in the whole spectrum of things how small the earth is. You know, it'd be just like a leaf. Suppose this earth would just fall like a leaf would fall off a tree in the autumn. There'd still be the whole system there, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, it wouldn't do any harm. Great, terrible harm to God's glorious creation of all the, the system. Except for the fact that God has so loved us that he put us upon this earth to dwell on it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And only in that respect would it be missed. And you see, what I'm trying to say is the insignificance of not only ourselves, but of the earth. And yet, God, what is man that thou, hast, thou, thou visitest him, or has visited man? God's glory is revealed in his consideration of man. He says, I am the Lord. I have made the earth, and I have made man, created man to dwell upon it. Job of old says, Mine eye has seen, wherefore I abhor myself. We, we really realize what we are in the sight of God sometimes. When we think of God's tender, careful man, it says, thou, And thou visitest him. It's quoted John 3.16. What about uh, 1 John 4, verse 9? In this was manifested the love of God toward us, and that while we, while we yet sinners, well, that's connected with Romans 5 as well. But it... Roman, uh, 1 John 4 9 says, In this was manifested the love of God. And then uh, Romans 5 or 7 and 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So what is man that thou art mindful of him? Then let's notice in verse 5 the glory given to man. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Angels that excel in strength, hearkening to the voice of God's word. Angels have great power. And man is made lower than the angels for a little while, a little while inferior. Angels are wise. Second Samuel chapter 14 verse 20 says, according to the wisdom of an angel, angels are not subject to death. And yet it's appointed unto men once to die. Jesus says angels are holy. Matthew 25 verse 31. Angels appear and disappear. 
Jesus was made lower than the angels for a while, a little while inferior to the angels for the suffering of death. We preached on that Sunday, didn't we? It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, the previous verses, quote this very psalm. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou didst to see him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with a glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all under his feet... Yet not all things put under, yet we see not all things put under him, but we see Jesus. That's verse 9. Who was made a little lower than the angel for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So we find that this, this psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 by Paul. So, yet man is given glory and honor uh, more than the angels as far as his future is concerned. Most of man's glory is the future. The Bible speaks in Romans 8 of the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, right now we have the glory of being the crown of God's creation in every, all animals and everything. If we read it in a moment, maybe we'll get to it. The things are under our feet, and yet we're going to be glorified with a great glory in, in eternity. Notice the next verse. Thou madest him to have uh, dominion. Over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and all and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. So man is going to have uh, greater glory in eternity. Man's present glory is earthly. All earthly things are under our feet. God made man and gave him this dominion and Yet all things in the future will be under 